Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. We go behind the scenes of the TV series Narcos, the rise of cocaine kingpin Pablo Escobar. This is Pop Culture Confidential. Hi, I'm Cristina Yerling Biro. Pablo Escobar is reputedly the wealthiest criminal in history and had an estimated net worth of $25 billion at the time of his death. The drug lord is the main focus of the Netflix acclaimed TV series Narcos. Narcos was filmed on location in Colombia, and many of the real-life protagonists were consultants on the show. Real archival footage is seen throughout the series, and it's equal parts drama and fascinating history lesson. By 1982, cocaine made up 30% of all Colombian export, surpassing coffee. Narcos is the story of the rise of cocaine kingpin Pablo Escobar, one of the leaders of the Medellin cartel, and the rise of cocaine from Colombia into the United States and the DEA's attempts to bring him and the cartel down. The show takes on the murky political history and the climate that gave rise to the drug cartels, America and Reagan's so-called war on drugs, including the law of extraditing Colombian narcos to the United States for drug crimes, even if they've never set foot on United States soil. And who can forget Nancy Reagan's just-say-no approach? Brazilian actor Wagner Moura plays Escobar, and he's excellent. He learned Spanish and gained a considerable amount of weight to embody the criminal. Escobar is a complex character. He is one of the world's most notorious criminals, who is reportedly responsible for over 4,000 murders and terrorizing many more. But to some, he's also a hero, a Robin Hood-like character who gave money to poor communities in Colombia, built soccer stadiums, and even ran for office. Narcos has a Scorsese-esque-like narration running through it, voiced by actor Boyd Holbrook, who plays special agent Steve Murphy, the DEA agent from Virginia who was assigned to Bogota, Colombia, targeting Escobar and the Medellin cartel. Imagine you were born in a poor family, in a poor country, and by the time you were 28 years old, you have so much money you can't even count it. Señores, yo soy Pablo Emilio Escobar Gaviria. Haciendo negocios, así que pues fresco. Ustedes eligen plata o plomo. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. I'm honored to be joined by Narcos producer Paul Eckstein. Mr. Eckstein started as an actor, played on Broadway, and he's guest starred on Star Trek a record eight times. 
Mr. Eckstein is a writer and producer best known for his work on the film Hoodlum and the television series Law and Order Criminal Intent. Mr. Eckstein, thank you so much for joining me. This is one of my favorite shows of the season. Excellent. It's a real pleasure to be here, Christina. Um, tell me a little bit about the genesis of the Narcos Project. It really started with our, our one of our executive producers, Eric Newman, who many years ago bought the rights to a book called Killing Pablo. And then um, found the two DEA agents who we based the series on and got their life rights. And from there, he managed over the years to kind of cobble together a couple of creative forces, um, including our other two EPs, um, Jose Padilla, who is a brilliant director, and Chris Brancato, who is a brilliant writer who I've worked with and known for 30 years. And so that's sort of where it started. Um, and then as, as we all started getting together, kind of the idea of how to tell this, this story and, and, and what was gonna, how we were going to make this different than just a gangster story, uh, started, that, that was sort of the constant, constant question mark. And as Chris and I assembled the writing staff, you know, one of the things that we were really, really conscious of was that you know, the truth, when you start telling stories about the truth, which is something that we've great experience in, and uh, that's pretty much where my career has always been, is you have to look at getting at the essence of the truth and not try and tell the truth. Because as we discovered in, you know, the dozens and hundreds of hundreds of books that we read and dozens of interviews that we did with people who knew Pablo Escobar or were there or were a part of events that happened, Everybody's perspective on the truth changes and is different depending on your, what your experience is. So you have to try and interpret it. I remember in college I had a history professor who said, you know, history is written by the victors, but the victors have only their perspective. And, and that's truly the way you have to sort of look at when you're doing something that has these epic real-life events and so, you know, I, I have a lot of documentary background. Jose has, has made a couple of amazing documentary movies. And we started trying to shape the, the story from that perspective, and as well as telling the story with voiceover and looking at sort of a, a Scorsese-like, Goodfellas-like um, outlook. And so when all these forces started coming together, and then you add <clears> – <throat> a bunch of diverse, brilliant writers. And then on top of that, you layer them with an extraordinary cast. You know, sometimes you get lucky. Let's talk about creating Pablo Escobar in, in your story, because I guess you don't want to make him too likable um, but at, for what is. But at the same time, there is a likable side to him, right? I mean, look, you go to Medellin or you, you go back to Colombia, there's still flowers at his grave, fresh flowers every day. You know, he, he, he truly did build parks and hospitals and schools and saved many, many people's lives. Like many Robin Hood gangsters, you know, a lot of his, the, the complexity to a guy like that is that they do a lot of good. They help a lot of poor people. You know, and he did. He helped a lot of poor people. Now, he did as many people as he, he helped. He did way more atrocious, horrible things as well. But that, that, that nobody is just one thing. So, you know, I, I think... It's it wasn't it's not hard to make a character like Pablo Escobar likable. I think it's more like you got to make him complex. You got to make it so an audience goes, "Wow, I never thought that somebody who could torture and kill and burn somebody and rape children could also really care about his family." 
could really be loved by the people around him. And, you know, that's, that's what makes it so interesting. During the early 80s, the best smuggler in the world was Pablo Escobar. He was a living embodiment of the Colombian dream. And with the money came the violence. Welcome to the Medellin Cartel. Estás gastando mucha plata, Pablo. Usted lava el dinero. Eso no fue lo que hizo Al Capone, pues. Al Capone nunca tuvo tanto billete, Pablo. Yes, we did an amazing job in, in creating this character um, and writing it. And But you got to give it to Wagner. Okay? Yes, yes. That up to the plate and has has been giving such a tremendous performance that, you know, what, everything we wrote would, would, would not, it wouldn't hold up if it wasn't for him spitting the words and, and he's dropping. He's amazing. So he's really, truly. And I mean, this is a guy who, you know, he didn't really even speak Spanish. Right. You know, and he got the part. I remember the day he got the part, the next day he was on the plane and uh, moved to Medellin and enrolled in Medellin University to learn Spanish and learn Medellin accents. Wow. This spent the next three months transforming himself into this character. And when you got an actor and you got actors who are doing that, I mean, I'm experiencing it now on the show I'm on, at the same level of actors. Mm. You know, you, you can do so much. You're so free to write. Yeah, when yeah. You know people who can deliver. No, so. he's amazing. He totally transformed himself. And he does that balance between likability and scary. It's just amazing what he's done with that, with your writing, of course, in, in the background. Who are some of the real consultants on the show? Well, I mean, let's start with my incredible staff. Um, you know, when you're doing a TV show, it's a collaborative writing process that happens. And, and that's really important to that kind of team unit unity that we had. And, and what I loved about our staff was we had this great rich diversity. We had a woman named Alison Abner who was a West Wing writer, um, but whose husband ran economic policy for um, Obama for his first term. And she lived in the White House basically. So she had this, and she was a, she was a really, really understood Washington and Washington politics and what was going on there as well as having, you know, written for Westwood. Um, and then we had another amazing writer, a, a woman named Dana Calvo, who uh, won a Pulitzer for her coverage of the drug cartels in Mexico. And she's this sassy, beautiful Argentinian woman who literally got ran out of the journalism business by the drug cartels. Oh, wow. So she had another perspective coming in that was so great. And then we had this young kid, uh, Martine Zimmerman, who was a, a playwright out of Chicago, whose uh, play won a Fulbright. Um, and he's... Um, He's uh, from uh, Chile. Just those right there, you know, we had these people uh, giving us these per perspectives on how they build story, how they research story that was, was, was really unique. So, you know, we, we, that, and those are just a, a couple that I'm mentioning. And then we had researchers in Colombia digging up research, whether it was um, documentary footage, news footage, or finding us books. Um, and you know, both, both Chris and I, especially me, I'm a real research history rat. So, mm -hmm. you know, I could teach a graduate level course on the drug cartels in Colombia in the eighties and nineties right now. And, and what that brings isn't just, um, 
you know, isn't just facts, but uh, a sense of authenticity that I think really comes through in the show. Um, I understand that the team um, visited uh, President Santos. Um, tell me a little bit about that meeting. Um, well, I wasn't at that meeting, so I can't really give you the the one-on-one. But, um, you know, w- what the takeaway was... This was to be able to film in Colombia. Yeah, this was to be able to film in Colombia. But the, the, that, I mean, that was one thing. But also, I think what it really was about was also making sure that we were, as we were, we're furthering the cause of sort of giving a perspective on the war of drugs, that on the war on drugs that's never really been told. You know, how, and giving a less American point of view on um, law enforcement, which, you know, usually when you're doing something in America or you're doing something on, on television or movies, it's all about the white hat American hero who comes down to save the day. And there's a, certainly an aspect of that and that what we like w- with, with our main character, with Steve Murphy and, and Boyd playing him, was that that's what his intention was. But that's, not, that's, that's a very limited perspective. And we, we tried really hard to point out and to bring out over and over again how that perspective um, is false. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I, I think one of the strengths of the show is that we're able to sort of um, point fingers at American foreign policy and American foreign policy objectives in those times and talk about the hypocrisy of the war on drugs in a very underplayed, subtle way. And that, that's definitely, I think, one of the things that uh, people are drawn to. Um, who did you work with on the ground? You went to many different places in Bogota and Medellin and, and everywhere, right? Yeah, yeah. And who did you work with on, on Colombians there on the ground? Uh, um, we, we, had, we had a production entity there and there were two producers uh, who, who are great, sort of American Colombian producers who went back and forth with us and really helped us sort of um, navigate uh, production elements as well as uh, just sort of get us a pass in certain areas because you look when you're shooting in Medellin you know and you're in the you know you're you're in the communas you know you got to go talk to the shot caller and say hey man we want to shoot up here so can you let us and we'll pay for security you know so that those kinds of things and we just had some great guys on the ground there who really knew the world and you know it's not like they haven't done a lot a bunch I mean they've done movies there so it's not completely, you know, completely foreign to them. How long was the research process? How long did you get? I mean, you know, we, sp- I mean, we're always, we were doing it all year long, but it was really focused for about four months. Um, we were doing that and really, really um, uh, 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 looking to get a, get, get a, a, a holistic view of what was going on and a million little specific facts all the time. And then the real Steve Murphy came in, for example. What did you learn from these consultants? Well, I mean, I, it's funny because I'm kind of a rebel, mm-hmm. um, but I love cops, man. <laughs> and I've been around them a lot. I've been lucky as a writer to be around them a lot. And, you know, I find them to be, incre- most of the time, law enforcement guys to be these you know, incredible superheroes who just, you know, they just want to get home to their families at the end of the day. And I know when I talk to Steve, like, we have nothing in common. <laughs> He's a Republican. He doesn't believe anything I believe. But I know he feels the same way. He's one of the greatest guys in the world. And so, you know, having to uh, get a chance to talk to these guys who were on the front lines um, is so fun. And it's so fun for them, too, because, you know, here's this older guy who, who, who did his thing and, and, and really was sacrificed, um, you know, and he gets to talk about it in a way in, you know, in like Hollywood, 
Yeah. <laughs> All these Hollywood guys. And we're celebrating him and, and, and really, really trying to, to, to present a, a character who is rounded but fair. Um, a hero, but complex and not, you know, not that just that white hat, but a gray personality, a character that, you know, is right and wrong and good and bad and is representative of, of that point of view. And with both Steve and with Javier, they were so wonderfully open and excited about what we were doing and what we were trying to do and how we were presenting it. And, you know, look, you know, in the same way. Do you have an example of one of the details that they gave you or one of them gave you that you, that you didn't know about that got into the script? Um, I mean, dozens and dozens from literally DEA tactics on how they uh, uh, would take a house or how they do interviews or uh, information on, on relationships of really how you deal with a snitch in this time. Dozens and dozens of stories, many of them heartbreaking um, and, and full of drama where you know, we took their experiences of, you know, going after this guy and, and, and dealing with Colombian police and, and dealing with uh, the CIA and, and the special forces. And we took all these stories and kind of, we, once again, pick and choose some of the essence of what those stories are. I mean, one of the greatest examples, I think, is there's an episode, episode I think it is two, where there's, you know, the hooker with a golden heart who... Um, is an amalgamation of numerous snitches, and 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 one of the things that they always talk about all the all these informants, all these confidential informants, was they want to go to Disneylandia, and Disneylandia is the place where we must go, and so you know that became a whole episode, like that that idea of the dream of Disneyland, um, and once again how that's that was warped in this hypocritical, bizarro world of the 80s and 90s drug world in Colombia to be this dream that was completely fake. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, actually, Disneyland was a ghetto in, you know, in Miami that's worse than anyone in Bogota or, or Medellin. So, so the, the, I, I think that it wasn't, I mean, yes, there were a lot of specific facts about tactics and how they worked and what they did and, um, you know, what, what are the experience? But most of all, it was getting impressions of this whole world that we were allowed to kind of build story from. This was my war. Your party took money from Escobar. Everyone took money. By the way, it's all American money. If there's one thing I've learned in the narco world, it's that life is more complicated than you think. We had no idea what we were in for. What about um, cartel members, uh, um, narcos themselves? Did you? What? Who did you get a chance to meet there and talk to? Um, you know, uh, fortunately, most of those people are dead um, or, or in jail. So, you know, the references, uh, the references to the narcos mostly came out of the literature that we read. Mm-hmm. All that. It's not a world that I'm unfamiliar with from my crazy youth. And uh, I think that one of the things that, you know, I feel most proud about about this show is, you know, my father's British and he was born in World War II. And, and when, when we talk about sort of when, I, when, when he talks about his experience of growing up in World War II, he talks a lot about how many people he's lost in mm-hmm. his life. And people that that when his youth he couldn't that that died there or what what have you, and and in many ways I I I've realized 
or my dad realized when I'm talking about this show and I'm talking about the people in my life, like this is my war. Nice. The drug war was my war. It was my generation's war. And um, I know a lot of people who died and, and because of it, you know, whether they bled out from a bullet or they OD'd or they were in the game or I know plenty of, got, plenty of cats who, who lost their lives and are now living in a cell too. And so, you know, when, when, when the word, the interviewing the narcos and finding about narc, finding out about the narco stuff was not that hard on a, I think an energetic personal level, but the greatest was digging into getting these facts of the crazy shit that they did and genius ways that they did. And they continue, by the way, there's El Chapo in Mexico is doing it every day for us in America now. How did you get those stories? So that was literature and journalists and stuff? Yeah, that was a lot of research and, and, and also from law enforcement side, um, you know, getting, getting those stories. And there's a lot out there if you dig. So, you know, the, the books, the, the other reference books and material written about Escobar and, and about the Cali cartel really give some amazing uh, stories of what went down in that time. So we were able to to pick and choose. We there was a there's an abundance. There's there wasn't a paucity of, you know, freaky. Are you kidding me? Stories. Um, what was Pablo's own relationship to cocaine? Uh, you know, like all Colombians, it's just an export, or most mm -hmm. Colombians, it's just an export. They, they didn't consider there wasn't anything. He was he was a pothead. He loved smoking ganja all day long. He'd wake up as we depict. He'd wake up, smoke a joint, and then he'd smoke a pot all day. He never touched it. None of those guys did. And most Colombians didn't. They thought it was stupid. And we were all, all the Americans were fools. Taking, I mean, and, you know, Colombia, Colombians are known for being smugglers and getting things out. Like that is a cultural heritage. So, you know, the idea that that's where it came from is not really surprising because that's what they're, they're really good at. For whether it's emeralds or coffee or whatever their product is, they're really good at getting it to wherever it needs to go. And the show is pretty, it's heavy on narration, which, um, of course, makes it just fascinating in terms of learning sort of the history and getting all kinds of perspective. And I understand that, that Jose Padilla, he said that this is a big part of Brazilian filmmaking, which I had, didn't really know. I haven't seen that much Brazilian. How, how was your, how did your thoughts in the writer's room go towards the narration? building it through narration. I mean, I love that stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, a Goodfellas Scorsese fan. I believe in the voiceover. And I think a lot of times it's used, unfortunately, in other situations to fill in the gaps of bad storytelling. Like usually, you know, that's the, that's the rap on voiceover. Oh, using a voiceover. Oh man, you must <laughs> exposition. Right. Oh, exposition. But you know, yes, it's not only Brazilian, Latin American, um, uh, particularly filmmaking, utilizes it a lot. And, and I think what was so smart about um, Jose's inclination was, and believe me, I spent a lot, it was so fun, I got to spend a lot of time with Jose kind of doing VO in the editing room with him because he's not American. So, I, you know, we'd come up with stuff and I'd make sure it sounded like an American was speaking it. Right. And he was really great and helped me understand, like, the Goodfellas does it um, in a way that's really personalized, and um, that's important. But what's really important is understanding that it's not a, it's a it's not a tool. It should be just as important as your dialogue, just as important as your plot. Like if you're going to use it, you got to fully use it. I'm Steve Murphy, drug enforcement agent. In 79th, the bad guys I was chasing were flip flops. Oh, you're running, huh? What you got? What is that? 
When I started, a one kilo grass bust was cause for celebration. Before long, we were seizing 60 kilos of coke a day. The hippies had been replaced by Colombians, and these guys didn't wear flip-flops. We were witnessing the formation of the famed Medellin cartel. There was Jose Rodriguez Gacha, the Ochoa brothers, and last but not least, Pablo Escobar. Before long, the narcos were pulling in $5 billion a year. And that, America can take. And in this show... You know, we're covering such huge swaths of, of, of time, uh, of, of geography that, you know, without it, you're so busy trying to just get the, the audience to know where you are that, um, you know, it pulls, it holds back the story. Right. So, you know, I, I wouldn't recommend it all the time, but in something like this, it's perfect. And, uh, you know, we are, we didn't just embrace it. We, we, we didn't just say, hey, we're going to use it to fill some holes or tie this or bridge this time period to this. Or, we use it as like, no, 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 this is a main character in a story, the voiceover. And we even were talking about like, all right, and, you know, who knows, season two, it might happen. We're like, okay, let's do some Pablo voice voiceover. I mean, we've written Pablo as voiceover. We wrote, you know, the other, the Javier's voiceover. We, we would just, we would do it all the time. And just see where it flowed. And eventually it was like, no, we got to limit it to, to focus it on, on onto one character, onto Murphy. Right, right. And one of the wonderful things is that there's so much Spanish in it, which just makes it so true. Was that a hard sell to an American network? Um, you know, Netflix, their, their intention, their primary intention for making this show was to capture South America. Mm-hmm. So... You know, that's the way, that's what's great about Netflix is they just have a different perspective on, on their business objectives for their, for, their mod, for their media, for their product. And so, so they were happy. They were happy. I mean, we were, we went back and forth and back and forth, but I mean, we were, we were excited about the notion and chewed on it a lot. And I think what we did in terms of putting the Spanish in was, was well, and not to, not to, not to be braggart, to be braggart about it, but I'd say this, this is why it works. We made sure that the first time you hear the Spanish, mm-hmm. you start going, oh, wow, everybody's speaking Spanish in that show. You can, because of the voiceover, because of the, the narrative style and documentary footage, and because of the choices of scenes being rather obvious, it doesn't matter that you don't understand what they're saying. If you pop into a room and there's a guy with a big pile of money and he's got a huge old phone and there's a pile of blow there, and he's talking on the phone, and he's got a gun in his belt. You know he's a drug dealer. You know what he's doing. So you're not. You're like, oh, okay, I get it. So if you miss some of his dialogue, you don't feel like you're missing the story. If you're like, oh, I can't read at the bottom of the screen. The subtitles are too much. You're still in the flow, and the authenticity of that Spanish makes you think that you're really seeing behind that fourth wall in a way that I, I you know, I, I, I think. I think other shows and other people have tried to hide it. You know, the bridge did it. They did. They did it pretty well, but they still tried to hide the Spanish and then, and and just kind of stick it in here or there. And we're doing it just for authenticity's sake. Whereas we went, no, 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 no. We're going to embrace this, just well, like the voiceover. Do you know what the um what the how they feel about the series in Colombia? Um, <laughs> you know, so funny. 
because they've just had this story so much. You know, they had a soap opera that ran for five years. There's been two or three movies in Colombia and South America made about Pablo. So they're kind of done with it. <laughs> Can we please talk about something else? You know, they pretty much want to get over it. So that and the other thing that's so funny is, you know, um, South American and Latinos in general, they, they, everybody has a different accent. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're Argentina, it's different than Mexico, Colombia. And so, you know, we tried as much as we can, but our Colombian accents, the accent, the actors don't always have it right. Right. right? And so their biggest beef is whenever, and I've sat with a bunch of Colombians and watched the show. They're like, the only people that sound real are the one line guest players. <laughs> so that's <laughs> what they're worried about. So that's what they're more beefed about. I think that they, um, uh, the other impression on the positive side is I think they're sort of impressed with our uh, authenticity and, um, you know, our desire not to, to, to present Americans as just the heroes and the complexity of Pablo really speaks to that country. And so, so I think on, on, on a bigger level, they're very appreciative of what we did with the story even though they're tired of hearing this story. What would you say is the as the sort of the average Colombian's relationship to this era and the states and what happened? I mean, this is what's crazy. I don't know anybody who I've met who's Colombian unless they're, you know, under 25 uh, who doesn't have somebody in their lives who was killed, tortured, kidnapped or a part of the cartels. Not one person. Everybody that I've met here in America and there talks about this time with, um, you know, a as a major part of their lives. We can't really imagine what it was like. You know, we're, we talk about terrorism now and, the, you know, uh, that's the big fear. These guys started it. These guys were, they wrote the book on terrorizing an entire nation. I mean, 20 cops a day dead. 80 bombs a day went off. I mean, there were, th and for long periods of times, they, they decided, as we depict, they took out the Supreme Court. I mean, this was terrorism at a level that uh, Al-Qaeda could only wish for because these guys were shrewd, ruthless, believed in themselves, and had more money than anybody else on the planet. You know, so they, they, they scarred every, every, I think every Colombian citizen um, over the age of 30 in some way was, has a scar, a wound. Something. And how do they feel about the Americans' policies during those years, do you know? Uh, you know, it's a mixed bag. I, you know, I think that we're very truthful in depicting that the, 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 the people of Colombia were, were happy that we were there, um, but, uh, you know, were very mixed on sort of the results of us being there. Um, you know, there's a lot of blame put on America's, uh, America, and yet at the same time there's there's many people who, who recognize that, thank God that we were there as well, um, in retrospect. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, honestly, the, there's, the, the Colombians won't tell me too much. <laughs> <laughs> One thing is about you, and it's interesting if you've, um, for people who've listened to the show, Star Trek comes up a lot in terms of writing. Um, on, on another um, show, I, I interviewed, for example, the exec producers of Mad Men, um, a couple named the Jacob Meddens, and they had been writers on Star Trek. And another person, I, uh, writer I spoke to, and they all say that Star Trek is the most amazing breeding ground for writing because every human emotion possible, every conflict 
has to take place in that little bridge, in the little cockpit. Did you learn anything from all your years um, as an actor on Star Trek? Yeah, I mean, a lot of things. I mean, I think a lot of people say that they're right. I know a lot of the writers from there are, are buddies of mine, and they really, a lot of talented cats there. I mean, Rick Berman, who put it all together, really was, he got a lot of really good young writers. He, he managed to find writers and make them in a way that I don't think any series, even Law & Order, uh, who has tons of, uh, of writers, that, that whole Dick Wolf world. Um, you know, here's what's great about science fiction. To, to my mind, you can explore truly, truly human emotions on a grand scale through this perspective of fantasy that you can't in other ways. You just, you, you, you know, whether it's, you know, James Kirk falling in love with a green-skinned girl, you know, and dealing with the racism of that, or, you know, how, how, uh, how you, you're dealing with this, the a subtlety of abortions in a world where abortions are reborn on Deep Space Nine. You know, there's, there's just this, this ability to take issues that we as humans now are really, really grappling with and give them, uh, take them out of our realm to explore them. That science fiction is, you can't do it any other place. Um, and so I, I think that also applies to the acting as well. You can really um, uh, leap through your character in a way that you can't um, when he's grounded in today's reality. So that, that's, that, that's one thing. And number two is this. The Star Trek is great. They have a lot of well-trained actors on that show. You got to know how to do the classics to do, to do uh, a Star Trek. If you're not, yeah, you got to have the voice training and the vocal understanding. To you really came be from Broadway to, before Star Trek, right? Yeah, yeah, I did. I mean, I did a lot of Broadway. I did a lot of Shakespeare in the Park and Guthrie. My background in, in, the, in my 20s was theater in New York. So, you know, I, though I didn't do one of these amazing training programs, I certainly was well-versed in, 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 in how you deal with classical theater and still, still enjoy it quite a bit. Um, uh, so a lot of those actors you'll see um, have that background, and that's because you got to be able to, once again, handle the mythic nature of science fiction as well as act your way through the makeup. I mean, sometimes I was on a show, I'd just be like, I just got to say the lines and let the let the makeup do the work. <laughs> I can imagine, yeah. And what about Law & Order? What did you bring from there to Narcos? Well, Law & Order, you know, I mean, that's like the Bible for a lot of, a lot of us actors and writers, you know, particularly if you're from New York. I mean, my, one of my first acting jobs on TV was doing a guest star on Law & Order, you know, and, and that, was, that was when I knew I had made it, man. I was on Law & Order, you know? <laughs> yeah. it, 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 it's very much, um, you know, it's an institution. And, and, and so, you know, what, what I learned, what I gained from Law & Order was a couple of things is, once again, you know, as I said before, I'm obsessed with telling real life stories. I don't think you need to make anything up. Like the real world is crazier than anything that can come out of my brain. Um, and so, you know, that's the basic idea that Law and Order tries to follow is real true life stories and give it a perspective. So once again, per perfecting that ability to take real life and look for the essence of the truth really was enhanced at Law and Order. And the other thing is just basic writing structure. Things like understanding what an act out is, how turning points are so important to end parts of stories, how character development has to arc and where it has to arc, where your setups are, 
are, where your turning points are, where the conflict and climax in a scene as well as in an act comes from. All those things are huge strengths of Law and Order of the franchises. And one, because, look, you know, you, you, that what, what Dick Wolf did was present the greatest stakes in the world all in one. You got the cops and you got the lawyers, right? So, you know, TV is about cops, lawyers, and doctors, basically. Everything. <laughs> That's all TV. So he put two of those together and, you know... He, and a few he, Star Trek aliens. Yeah, right, yeah, and Star right. Trek. Well, even there, I mean, they're just... Docs you know, and lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> True. Which absolutely applies to Narcos as well. Yeah, it does. What about the second season? Are you involved? And Unfortunately, not involved in season two. Um, you know, both Chris and I jumped ship or, um, and just the ABC just said, hey, you know, we want to do a show uh, that it, it, and we need people like you to bring sort of your cable mentality to storytelling and that's what this is about and they kind of just you know just made an offer i couldn't refuse so you and chris Brunhart, you guys are you're talking to me from south africa because you're filming um that show now what is the show it's called of kings and prophets and it's on abc and it's the story of king david from the biblical story of uh, the book of samuel and who's going to be in it um Amazing cast, a bunch of Brits, uh, starring uh, Ray Winston uh, from Sexy Beast, who is just one of the most incredible actors I've ever worked with. It's so I can't tell you how how, how blessed I am to go from Wagner and Pedro to Ray. It's just like you couldn't. I'm I'm a lucky guy. I win. Yeah, <laughs> I got these guys saying my lines. Wow, it's just incredible. So Ray, there's a, and then his his wife uh, is Simone Kessel, who's another extraordinary actress. The guy who's playing David is this kid out of um, Royal Shakespeare named Ollie Ricks, and he's fabulous. Bunch of other Brits and international as well. When can we expect this? Uh, you know, ABC is talking about dropping it in February. Um, you know, I'm sure they're gonna work a little bit the uh, religious season. Hopefully Easter, Passover, that's when you should really start selling the show. Um, they say Sunday nights at 10, but that's way above my pay grade. So <laughs> I wish I could tell you, but um, it'll be out next year. Okay. And it's really good. Yeah. It's really, really good. I got to say, I'm very, very. Huge excited. production over there. Huge production. Huge. We built everything. There's castles and chariots. And, you know, we got every day I got 30 horses and 20 mules and you know, 200 extras everywhere. And, you know, it, it's very epic. It's very, very epic. And that by nature of it, and, and in, in many ways, so is the, the story and the, 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 the acting is very, very epic as well. Um, what's interesting or what really attracted to me and, and, and at the end of the day, what was the sell, not just the, okay, here's a, your paycheck, was the idea presented by Reza Aslan, who's uh, one of our executive producer, who said, you know, he's a wonderful theologian and a brilliant, brilliant guy. He said, what we're attempting to do here is, is look at the Bible from a much more humanistic perspective in terms of exploring the intent of the people that we all know, um, whether that's David or Goliath or Bathsheba. Um, you know, uh, the Bible has a lot of events. Um, and um, the, there's moralizing about events, but there's very little about the intents of the people in it, like really exploring why they're doing what they're doing. 
It's just here are the facts, Jack. So we're really exploring that. And the other one is what we call the negative space of the Bible. There's a lot of times where this character is presented in a story and we hear about what they did and then we don't hear about them for 20 years. Um, or they come back in a way. And so we're really having fun with exploring what happened there. And, and it's very, very similar process to Narcos. In more, yeah, I was just going to say. Because we have theologians who are researchers. We, you know, we have talked to you know, rabbis and priests and deep thinkers and studied that material. And obviously there's so much written about it. Um, and, and then we kind of interpret what the essence of the truth might be in these stories and then create drama from that uh, and create the moment-to-moment -moment lives of what these people were going through. So it's quite fun to uh, have great, great actors and great, great conflicts going on as, as well as, you know, epic battles with 300 extras and horses and catapults and flaming arrows <laughs> that's amazing paul this was so great and just going from from uh you know location and boat and everything you did there to this project the amazing things you're doing and thank you so much for taking your time you must be super busy to talk to me real pleasure christina thank you so much to paul and don't miss narcos on netflix and thank you for listening and for all the feedback last week. Keep sending us your feedback and sharing the show on Twitter. The hashtag is at PodPopCulture and Facebook and Instagram and anywhere you may be. Um, this show was edited by Tom Hansen, music by Carl Boy, produced by Rene Wittstedt and myself. I'm Christina Jörling Biro. Thank you so much. Marie Kelly. Wild Precious Life is a podcast about dreaming big, digging in and connecting across distance, division, and loss. In each episode, I talk with prize-winning writers, musicians, and wanderers who remind all of us how we can make the most of the time we have. So meet me here. Let's walk and talk and dream and discover what it means to be wild, precious, and brave. Wild Precious Life.